Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. I'm happy to be here. I assume you are as well. Is that true? You know, I have to bring a lot of things to put on my table because, you know, I'm a woman. So I got to bring them all. It's really good to be with you all. I get the privilege, if I haven't met you, I'm Susan. I would love to meet you. But I get the privilege of taking us into week three of our series of prayers that Jesus prayed. We've been looking at Jesus' intimacy with the Father and how he's been teaching his disciples, his followers, to have that same intimacy. We've been looking at the Lord's Prayer and how we can go with bold intimacy to the Father and we can ask for our needs, our physical, our relational, our spiritual needs, everything that we need, we can go to him with. And this morning we're going to be talking about Jesus' habits of stillness and solitude, his habit of going and being away with the Father, because what happened when he had that habit is he was centered in the Father's love and the Father's will. But we're going to start with a story. So some of you know, many of you know, that I had a former life as a pediatrician. And so for 20 years, I practiced pediatrics. And part of what I did was I sat with parents who had concerns about their kids' behavior. And I remember sitting with a family, parents, mom and dad, of a second-grade girl. And they were concerned that she might be depressed. She hadn't been liking school. She wasn't as uh, energetic. She was tired all the time. So they came in alone without her, and we went through stacks of assessments regarding her. And I looked at her chart, and everything looked pretty good, because that's how things often roll when you're only seven years old. But as we, we began to kind of wonder, what was it that was causing this in her? And I, so I asked some, some kind of layered questions, like, well, what, you know, what does she like? Well, you know, she likes Japanese lessons. That was something that she's liked. Um, soccer went, you know, that's been really good. Uh, brownies have been good. We do a, a thing on Wednesday nights, the uh, Wednesday night church deal that she's really liked. And, and theater, oh, I forgot about theater. Yeah, that's really cool. And, and I said, well, just tell me, like, what does her week look like now? Like, what's she involved in now? And they said, well, those are the things she's doing now. And I, my eyes got kind of big. And I think as my eyes got big, their eyes got big on their, their own, kind of like swimming in the salmon stream of, like, what this little girl's days looked like. And we determined that on every single weekday, she was doing at least two activities, except on Wednesday because she had Roman coin collecting club after school. Wow. You know, it's like it seemed so obvious to me, and they began to see that it was obvious to them. But when it happens in my own life, as my family will well vouch for, it's not so obvious, is it? They're sitting over there. They're rolling their eyes that I'm even preaching about this thing. <laughs> because the truth is that we have dizzying, cluttered, crowded lives, and for this little girl at age seven, she was beginning to experience that, and her little mind and body were shutting down. It starts early, doesn't it? When you're in elementary school and you're on the football team and you don't want to be late because if you're the one who's late, every single one of your team members has to run laps, and that's terrible. And then when you're in middle school and you want to be first chair and, and you put the pressure on yourself... And then when you're in, in business and you're, you're, you've made it and you've graduated college, that internship comes along and you bust your backside because you've got to do that, you've got to perform, you've got to put pressure on to have an unsustainable life. 
You know what I'm talking about. We all get that. Because the truth is that we are addicted to busy, cluttered lives. Would you agree? We're addicted to busy, cluttered lives. And we wonder, like, why do we even subject ourselves to that? Seems kind of dumb. Researchers look at this, and what they say is really interesting. One person says this. People are busy because they fear what they might have to face in its absence. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. You know, decades ago, it was predicted that by now, we'd be working 15 to 20 hours a week because we have technology, right? We have all these things. But the truth is that we're working more now than ever. In America, we work 137 average hours more per week or per uh, year than the Japanese. Yeah, we work almost a 400 average hours a year than the Germans and almost 500 more than the French. 12 weeks more work than the French people. We Americans have this pretty bad. The good news is, is that our productivity is up by 400%, but the bad news is, is we're too exhausted to read a story to our children at night when we put them to bed. The result is that as we do to put a salve on our self-esteem and our need to perform, we have broken relationships, we have behavior issues, we're exhausted. We have, I had all these this week, you guys, all of these. <laughs> we're exhausted. You know, we, we are facing emptiness. And we, we put ourselves in charge of just running, 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 running to soothe those things. We have dizzying, cluttered lives. But the more important thing is the impact that it has on our souls. One Jesus-following author said this, We live in a climate where it's difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We're distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion because we have dizzying, cluttered lives. We don't recognize it. We kind of brag about it, like, oh, this week is so busy. It's called humble bragging. You know, you've never met somebody who's so busy that they can't stop and tell you how busy they are. (laughs) Yeah. We don't know how to handle it. We read books. We listen to podcasts. We have apps that let us hear rain as we go to bed at night because it's supposed to calm us down. We watch Bob Ross painting videos on YouTube. There's a guy on YouTube. I kid you not. He has 34 million views. He's a barber in a hole-in-the-wall place in India. And when people watch him shave and massage heads, it makes them feel more peaceful. We don't know how to solve the problem, and when we do find a temporary solution, it is just that. It is temporary. It's like a Band-Aid that just washes off the next day in the shower. Jesus has something we can learn from. Jesus' habit of stillness and solitude with the Father is something that you and I can learn from, because in it, he, he stopped. In it, he sat still. In it, he connected with the Father. In it, he heard the Father's voice. So important that he hear the Father's voice. So important that we hear the Father's voice. So we're going to begin by looking at the Father's voice to Jesus. We're in Luke 3. We're going to start in verses 21 and 22, and I'll read it. It'll be on the screen behind me. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was being baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, 
whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You're my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This was inauguration day for Jesus. It was the beginning of his public ministry. He knew that he was called by God. He knew that he was sent with a mission. But just like everyone else, he was standing in line, picture this, to get baptized. I wonder who was in front of him and behind him. And as he's being baptized, he's saying yes to all that God has for him, all that the Father has for him, to the plan that had been made since the foundation of the world. And he's immersing himself in that. And he prays in that inaugural moment because we pray in those inaugural moments, don't we? At the start of the game, at the start of the delivery of our firstborn, at the start of a job. This is Jesus' inaugural moment. And because those moments feel bigger than we are, we need direction. We need blessing. We need help. Jesus wanted blessing from the Father. He needed direction from the Father. He needed help from the Father. So we pray. And the heavens responded with a resounding, pull back the curtain. One of the gospel writers says, tore open the heavens for the Father's voice to come through loudly and clearly and say, you are my son. For everyone to hear, not just proud father whose kid is pitching the inning, that's my boy, which was also important, but you're my son authoritative and tender, intimate, so personal. You're my son. Don't forget it because it's not going to be long before you're in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by someone who is not me. Don't forget who you are. Identity is important. It drives our narratives. It drives most of what we do. Identity is important for who we are. If we don't think identity is important, ask a Ukrainian. Identity is important. The voice that came from heaven was a loving voice. The Father's voice spoke love over him. The Greek word there is agapetos. Do you hear that? Agape. That agape, unconditional fatherly love. Agapetos. You are the object of my love. That is your identity. You are my beloved. Jesus could rest in that. This word was used primarily or often in the Greek secular culture for the, the love of an only child from both parents. It was a special kind of love. My mom, who's here, you can say hi to her later, is an only child. And she grew up in this small town, and, and so she received the love of her mom and dad. She was the only one. But the thing was, she was also the only grandchild on one side. And the other thing was is that she was also born on the birthday of one of the grandparents. So her grandfather would take her around town by the hand when she was a little girl and say, this is my only grandbaby born on my birthday. And boy, did she feel loved. Agave Toss, her identity was in love, and she has pretty good self-esteem to this day. The father spoke delight. He was exuberantly pleased. It wasn't tolerant. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, I see you, I know you. This was exuberant, overwhelming delight. So personally, and the thing that we need to notice here is that this is inauguration day. This is not, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. That would come. But this is inauguration day for Jesus. He hadn't done anything yet. This is just who the Father saw him to be. The Father's voice so important. And Jesus would want and need to return to the Father's voice over and over and over again in his ministry. 
We're going to look at three times that Jesus sought the Father in particular. There are others. But we're going to start with um, the voice of the Father in hurry. We're in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Because he not only needed to hear the Father's voice, he needed to encounter him. He not only needed to remember that God had said these things on Inauguration Day, but he needed to be in his presence now. We need to do the same. We don't need to only look back to that time that we remember that God showed up when we prayed, but we need to sit and be still in the presence of the Father today and hear his voice. Um, Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So the context of this is he's been baptized, he's, he's gone to the wilderness, he's been tempted, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been casting out impure spirits. And right before this verse comes, he's healed a leper, which was unheard of in their day. And in and, and healing that leper, he's begun to break down social barriers of isolation and just begin to dismantle huge systems of injustice for a people that God loved. And it was a profound deal, and Jesus said, yes, leper who's now cleansed, don't tell anyone. It's not my time yet. Don't say anything. And, and, and yet the text says, yet the news about him spread all the more. And crowds and crowds of people began to come to Jesus. Can you imagine how he felt? We feel pulled in all directions. Jesus knows what it's like to be pulled in all directions. He knows what it's like to have a lot to do, to feel that temptation to hurry and to rush. And what does the text say that he does? But Jesus. We'll get there. But Jesus. It's almost in our lives like we plan to hurry. I came across this ad for a a programmable coffee maker, and this is what it said. Mornings begin with coffee. They do for many. From the first rejuvenating sips before the work to cozy book-in-hand weekends. Can't you just picture it? Now imagine the waft of a fresh pot before you even get up, stretch your arms, and slog to the kitchen to make it. So if we buy this programmable coffee maker, it'll solve that problem, right? You'll be able to come down and have your rejuvenating sip and take a slow stretch. But what do we do in reality, right? Our coffee is made, but we're hustling down the stairs, and we pop an ego in for our kids, and we... I don't know if we slog down our coffee, but we we sip it at a decent pace as we scroll through the news and check our investments and maybe play Wordle, right? Throw in some laundry on our way out the door, and a day hasn't even started yet. The lie is that we get more peace. We actually get more room to have more to do because we live in this place where we feel pressure to perform. We feel pressure to progress and to accomplish things that are beyond our capability. But Jesus, so in a time when Jesus could have done a lot of different things, what did he do? He often withdrew. Often. This was usual for him. To lonely places. We've talked about this word, eremos, the wilderness, that place that's lonely, where you're alone with God, but you find that you're really not alone. In the wilderness, it would center him as he prayed on who the Father said he was, on the love and the delight that the Father had for him. Jesus had the perfect setup, and I probably would have fallen into this for pride, 
for performance, for people-pleasing, right? He's like, hey, I'm pretty good at this. Like, if we organized, I could have some people on the right and some people on the left. I could heal with both hands. Yeah, I could set up medical clinics. And because there's lots of people who need to be healed, but what did he do? He snuck away, and he got with the Father, and he enjoyed the presence of the Father, reminding him of who he was and who he wasn't, that he was dearly loved. Because instead of getting distracted with good things, Jesus focused on the main thing. And it was only in the presence of the Father that he could do that. Our own tendency is to get caught up in being on this treadmill, and we're almost like we're contestants in this invisible game of doing more and doing more. Or for some of us, the reality is probably that this is how your life has to be structured. There are we people who depend on you. There are situations that are beyond your control. And either way, it's hard for us to even go through our day and hear the voices of the people around us, much less hear the voice of the Father. The voice of the Father is something that we can hear when we stop other things. So in our busy, calendared lives, stillness and solitude with the Father can bring us three things and more. I'm going to talk about peace. Knowing who you are in him, knowing who you are in him can bring you great peace, sitting in that peace of who you are in the Father's love. It can bring you a lighter load. As you reorganize and sit in the Father's presence and you understand his will for you, he says this but not that, that but not this. Don't worry about that. You were never meant to carry that burden. It brings us perspective of things that are right in front of us that seem so important in the moment when really, as he comes into the room, seem like a distant, faded task. The Father's voice in our lives calms our hurry. It calms our hurry. I want to talk about, like, what does it look like to, to hear the Father's voice, to listen to the Father's voice? We're talking about not an audible thing for most people, but something that resonates with your spirit, that you, you, you know that it's his presence that is nudging you in a direction. What does it look like? Well, there are three things I want to leave us with with this point. Is One is just remember. Remember who you are, whose you are, that he delights and loves you, that you're his son or daughter. The second is make space. I'd suggest starting by just getting used to silence. It's uncomfortable. Make space. Unplug. Turn it off. Turn it down. Leave it at home. The second thing I'd say is just close your door. Maybe it's your, your bedroom. Maybe it's your office. Close your door for a period of time during your workday or during your home life and, and allow that silent space to start to take shape. Then I would say take five minutes of silence and solitude with the Lord. Take five minutes. Allow it to grow to ten as you become more comfortable. And when you forget, give yourself grace and try it again. Twenty minutes is a sweet time. Twenty minutes has something in particular about, like, if we sit in for twenty minutes, but if you can get to five, if you can get to six, you're on your way. And then the last thing I'd say is just repeat. Repeat with grace. Give yourself grace. Try it out. It's a new practice for many. We're going to look at the voice of the Father and decisions. We're in Luke 6, 12 through 13. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. 
When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So this is a little later in Jesus' ministry. He has an, another year and a half or two before he will be exiting the planet. And he needs to leave his ministry and the purpose for which he came in capable hands. And so um, as he does that, he needs to train people up. And he needs to choose who those people would be. So what does he do? He goes out to the mountain and he prays. And he prays not for a short time. He prays all night long. Because he does a deliberate thing. He gets himself up. He takes action. He goes to a place of prayer. He's probably been to before. Some of the translations say the mountain as though, oh, that's the one where Jesus goes to pray. And he begins to, to pray a deliberate, invested time. He's not doing this because he's doing that. And he spends all night in prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but when you spend all night doing something, it's usually not very pleasant. Like, I can think of when the kid is sick and you're catching bodily fluids, right? Or the papers do and you're up all night because it just absolutely has to get done. But here, Jesus needs to center himself in the Father's will. And, and we don't know exactly what he prayed, but we can get a clue by looking at the next verse. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. My guess is that Jesus was praying about whom to choose. My guess is he was praying for those people that he would choose because opposition had already started to mount against him, and it's also going to mount against them. But at the end of the day, what Jesus is praying for is the will of the Father. He's praying for the will of the Father. He's like, I don't want my will, but I want yours. This is, this is Jesus' desire. Each one of those people, the, the wild card fisherman and the religious zealot, all of those people would be ones Jesus would pray over all night long. And then there was Judas. This is a time when Jesus would choose Judas. And we wonder, did he know? Yes, he knew. John 6 tells us that. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would not believe and who would betray him. Can you imagine? Do I pick him? Do I let him into my inner circle? The thing about Jesus is he wasn't voluntold. We have the impression sometimes that God is a mino and that Jesus got booted out of heaven and sent to earth to die because we're schluppy. That's not the truth. Jesus was not voluntold. John 10 tells us, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus picks Judas in this time that he faces a difficult decision, and he could do that because he had stillness and solitude with the Father. He knew that he was known and loved and, desired and delighted in. We need that too. When we make choices, so many choices, homeschool, public school, career choices, do I sell the house, home, you know, all the things are coming our way. We've got voices that are telling us, family, friends, coaches, teachers, mentors. We've got social media influencing us. We have so many voices that unless we get silent and still before the Lord, we can't hear the Father's voice, which is the one that we need to hear. For me, it's logic. It's like I do an algorithm in my mind and I get to the yeses and the noes and I land on an answer. My guess if Jesus did that is that Judas would not be among the 12. And that my guess is if that happened, that we would not be sitting in this room. Yeah. We need the Father's voice to know the Father's will. 
But we can't know the Father's will unless we sit in his presence. We pray for thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We need to sit in the Father's presence to know the Father's will. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's a prophet, Samuel, and he was called upon by God to choose a, a couple of kings. He was in, and as, as Samuel went to the first king, it was the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. And, and he uh, saw all the candidates, and he saw Saul, and he saw Saul was tall and handsome. Of course he was going to be the one that God told him to anoint. And he listened to the father, and the, God said, yes, this is the one. Anoint him king. And Saul did, or Samuel did. And so Saul was king for a number of years until he disobeyed and he displeased God and he was rejected as king. And so God sent Samuel out again to anoint a king. And in that case, I'd be like, oh, done this before. Like, thanks, I'm fine. And I would have gone to find the tall, as handsome, all the things. So he lines up the seven sons of Jesse that show up to the anointing party. And he sees the firstborn and he goes, oh, I'm sure it's him. And God says, no, it's not. I haven't chosen him. I've rejected him. You know, I know what it's like for you. You see the outward appearance, but I see the heart. Samuel could hear God's voice telling him to not anoint this tall, handsome firstborn. And so the, the one who he ended up anointing that God led him to was the runty, eighth-born kid in the family who was out tending the sheep, and it was David. And God said, that's the one. He has my heart. Anoint him. And so Samuel anointed David king. How did Samuel know? If we look at the life of Samuel, we know that he lived from the time he was a very small boy in the presence of the Lord himself. He served in the temple. God spoke to him at a very young age and continued to speak to him throughout his life. Samuel knew because he understood and could hear and discern the father's voice. He had a habit of stillness and solitude. We might be looking for a Saul choice in our lives when God is calling us to a David choice. It's not our logic that leads us to those things. When we look for the person who's the smartest, the best looking, we look to the job that pays the most, that the commute is the shortest, we might be missing God's David choice for us. We think that God will lead us to decisions that make sense to us and that the world would say, do that when actually God's voice leads us to him. God's voice leads us to him. Nothing else matters. The Father's voice leads us to him. Maybe you have been following Jesus for some time, or maybe you're new to that idea. Maybe you hear a voice, or in your spirit, you sense that God is is mildly displeased with you most of the time. Maybe you know his displeasure. Maybe that voice that you hear is condemning. It's rushing. It pushes you. It tells you that because of that thing you did, you'll always be on plan B. Can I just tell you, friends, if you don't leave with anything else from this morning, can I just say that that is not your father's voice? That is not your father's voice. And that's the voice, the narrative that we have, I would say, Most of us have a good part of the time when we're not sitting in stillness and solitude with the Father. The Father's voice calms you, reassures you, accepts you, loves you, knows you, brings peace to you, stills your hurry. The Father's voice invites you. The Father's voice convicts you, but so that you will come back to Him. That's the Father's voice. 
We're going to look at one more, the Father's voice and trials. So we're in the end part of Luke, at Luke chapter 22, uh, starting with verse 39 to 41. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Um, we would know that this is the Garden of Gethsemane by looking at other Gospels. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. This is one of the, the passages of Scripture that will reveal so much deep heart of God in it. We're going to get to it in a few weeks. We're going to spend more time here. But know that this is the very end of Jesus' life. In 24 hours, he's going to be dead body lying in a tomb. And the text says this, Jesus went out as usual. In the time when he knew that he was 24 hours from lying in a tomb, he went out as usual. He knelt down and he prayed. This was not new to him. This is where he spent time. As he began to pour out his prayers, he heard the Father's voice that said, You're my son. I love you. I delight in you. There's nothing that can take you away from me. Jesus could have felt anger or self-pity or fear, but since he had this practice of being in stillness and solitude with the Father, he heard the Father's voice, and he had the calming, reassuring comfort of his good Father. We need a habit of stillness and solitude with the Father in our trials, where we hear his voice. Some of us have incredible things going on in our lives right now. You're in a major trial of your life. Can I just encourage you that that moment that you're in is one of the moments of God's greatest, most profound invitations to you? Right in that moment, would you, would you make an extra five minutes, ten minutes to sit in his presence and hear his voice and know that it's him speaking to you? When I first started into uh, vocational ministry at the tender age of 50, <laughs> there's time for everyone. <laughs> um, I was in an operations role in adult ministries at a church uh, in our area where we used to live, uh, where we do live, where we used to go. Uh, and um, we had an opening for a children's ministry lead. And I just have to say, like bar none, I think children's ministry is so important for who we are as a church plays such a pivotal role. Um, I also knew that I did not have that in my list of passions. And so without any disrespect and with great gratitude for the children's ministry team, anchor kids here, it just wasn't my thing. And so I was hiring. I needed to hire this thing. We had a good lead time of about nine months. And, uh, and something even in the beginning kind of let me know like, oh, there's something weird about this one. It feels a little tender and personal. Uh, but I turned over every stone, did tons of interviews, had lots of conversations, and, and nine months passed, and we didn't have anyone. And I finally began to actually listen to that voice saying, I think this one's for you, Susan. And so through a series of events, I ended up taking that children's ministry position for a year, which actually was two, of course, because that's how it works. But I had told God already, I didn't leave my practice, God, so that I could do children's ministry. I don't do cardstock. I don't do popsicle sticks. I don't do all of those things. I actually am not very good with large crowds of children. 
And so God did some cool things in that time, but what I noticed most of all was a couple of weeks or a couple months in, I started to feel a little tender. And there were some vague emotions that were kind of familiar, vague, vaguely familiar emotions that were sort of coming up in me. And I paid attention to those when I had time. <laughs> I didn't want to. And then a couple months more, I, I was starting to feel really fragile. And I remember calling up a counselor friend of mine and just saying, like, I'm feeling really fragile. He said, come on in. The thing that was interesting was that happened to be the coinciding time that I was in a cohort of people for a spiritual formation retreat-based um, pastor cohort. And in that time of of what was coming up as a pretty big trial in my life of childhood wounds that I had experienced kind of coming to the surface, I began to, with my other um, colleagues, spend time deliberately learning habits and practices of stillness and solitude, where I was unlearning the tolerant love of the Father and diving in deep and hard to the, the love that the Father has for you and me the delightedness, the agape toss that he had for me, and that he rejoices over me. And it made such a difference in my life because what we know is that trials happen and, and that as we experience trials, that our habits of stillness and solitude, our habits of prayer are ramped up. And so God brings us near during that time. That began a deep inward healing journey in my life, one that I'm so thankful for. And as I look back at that time and I sit across the table from you, I get now excited as I hear your stories of something stirring and a trial that God is doing because I know that he's planting seeds that lead to great freedom. And I'm excited about that with you. I'll invite the band up. Uh, Jesus had a habit of stillness and solitude with his father. It took him through hurried times, kept him making the main thing the main thing. It took him through tough decisions that he knew would impact his life. It took him through times of trial when he needed to hear the father's voice say, you're my son, you're my beloved, I delight in you. When Jesus paid attention to the Father's voice, we then got to be the beloved of the Father. Colossians 3:12 says this, God, we are God's chosen people. We're holy and dearly loved. We get to be that because he listened to the voice of the Father. We get to be called God's children. John 1:17 says that we get to be called children of God because of what Jesus did for us. When Jesus listened to the Father's voice, the, the old prophecy from Zephaniah 3.17 would one day come to pass. And that would be that we would be delighted over the Father with singing, you and me. And as we sit in the presence of the Father in stillness and silence, in solitude with him, we begin to take these things from mind to heart. We begin to experience the love of the Father for you. I hope that you'll dive into that practice.